Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, the science writer Laura Hiscott joins me to talk about a recent study that concludes that innovation is on the decline in science and technology. But first, I chat with two environmental scientists and discover how Earth observation satellites are being used to track how climate change is affecting ecosystems. And we also talk about how air pollution and the greening of urban landscapes affects human health. I'm joined down the line by Michelle Bell, who is Professor of Environmental Health at Yale University, and Professor Scott Getz, who heads the Global Earth Observation and Dynamics of Ecosystems Lab at Northern Arizona University. They're editors-in-chief of two new environmental journals published by IOP Publishing, which also brings you Physics World. Now, we'll talk about those journals in a few minutes, but first, let's find out a bit about Scott and Michelle's research. Hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. So, Michelle, much of your research focuses on the effects of air pollution on human health. Can you give us a taste of some of the studies that you've done recently? Yes, yeah, so we do a lot of work on air pollution and human health, but we also work on other aspects of the environment that could negatively or even positively impact human health. So this includes exposure such as weather, um, like cold and heat waves, green space, and other factors. To give you a few examples of some of our current projects, we have a study right now in Brazil with collaborators there looking at how air pollution and heat waves impact mortality. And for this study, we're particularly interested in which populations are most affected. So for example, are poor individuals more affected by heat for risk of mortality than richer individuals? Another example of an ongoing study is work we have in Australia with our Australian collaborators. And here we're looking at wildfires, which are more commonly called bushfires in Australia. So for this study, we're looking at mother's exposure to air pollution, specifically from wildfires and how that can impact risk of adverse birth outcomes, such as low birth weight and preterm birth. Uh, just to give you one more example, we're doing work in North Carolina in the United States to look at how mortality is impacted by exposure to particulate matter. And here we're interested in how that risk may have changed over time because the chemical structure of particles has been changing over time due to different sources of pollution for particles. And Michelle, you've also looked at how the greening of urban areas affects the health and well-being of residents. Is there a straightforward relationship between greener cities and better health, or is, is it more complicated than that? Well, in my opinion, it's, it's straightforward that there are benefits of green cities. However, what those impacts actually are and those pathways are very complex because there are many different pathways through which green space and, and greening cities can impact human health. So one is through improved air quality. Another is through lowering the temperature and mitigating the urban heat island effect. And then a lot of this depends on the type of green space. So you can have increases in physical activity, which improve overall health. If it's a type of green space where people come together, you can actually have increase in social cohesion for the community. And so it, it really depends on the type of green space, both for urban and rural areas, so, you know, is this a park? Is it a forest? Is it a field? Or is it tree-lined streets? And so on. 
And is there a danger sometimes that um, in, in, in sort of the zeal to, to create a, zid, uh, a greener city, that maybe some groups of people are, I don't know, they, they, they find themselves forced out of, of areas where they, that they used to enjoy or that neighborhoods are modified in a, in a way that's to the detriment of, of some people? This is actually a really interesting question, like who is benefiting from the greening of cities? And so we have actually done some studies in Washington, D.C. with my former Ph.D. student, Alicia Chan, looking at green infrastructure and how even though the green infrastructure was more likely to be placed in communities that had a higher percentage of racial ethnic minority populations, that after those green infrastructures were in place, there was a green gentrification that happened where basically the communities became whiter than they were on trend with what had happened before the green infrastructure. There are other issues of, you know, are are trees on streets creating a burden for leaves and so on. So I think my key message is that we know there are a lot of different benefits from green space, but it's really important that communities have a lot of agency in deciding what type of green space is going into their communities rather than some type of top-down approach. And Scott, I'd like to bring you in uh, now. Much of your research involves using data from Earth observation satellites to study changing ecosystems. What what sorts of data do you use and what do these tell you about how the environment is changing because of human activity? Uh, we use data, my group, from all sorts of uh, different Earth observing satellites, uh, as well as airborne uh, measurements taken from aircraft, <clears throat> and um, and those those data range all across the spectrum in terms of spatial scale, or resolution, and extent, uh, and also temporally. Some collect data very frequently. Some collect data maybe only once every two weeks or so. Um, but in general, um, the data that we work with is what we call moderate resolution, which means it's about 30 meter footprint on the ground. <clears throat> and we use those data predominantly because, at least in this day and age, um, that's a resolution where we can actually study global extent. It used to be in the past, we'd, we'd have to deal with you know, maybe one kilometer resolution data on that order. <clears throat> But um, so that's a, that's a sort of resolution or a footprint on the ground where you can really detect a lot of change, environmental, ecological change. And we work in a variety of different um, ecosystems. Um, for example, in the Arctic, where we're observing a lot of different types of changes related to vegetation and permafrost thaw uh, associated with global warming. Um, but we also work in the in tropical ecosystems and look at um, the impacts of often humans on the environment in terms of deforestation or forest degradation. <clears throat> and for those types of studies, we bring in some very unique um, measurements that we have <clears throat> on, a, on an instrument on the International Space Station. It's actually a laser instrument. And from that those types of measurements, we can actually characterize the three-dimensional structure of forest canopies, uh, their height, and their above-ground biomass. Uh, so we bring all those types of measurements to bear on ecosystem 
studies. And Scott, you've recently looked at the effects of climate change on taiga, which is a, a vast forested region that stretches across Asia, North America, and Europe. C can you tell us a bit uh, about this uh, environment and how it's changing? Yes, the, the taiga, or a lot of people refer to it as the boreal forest, um, is a yeah, it's a very large uh, biome that extends across uh, North America and Northern Eurasia, so Alaska, Canada, uh, Europe, uh, northern parts of Europe, and, and uh, Russia. Um, and there are a lot of changes actually taking place across those ecosystems because, again, because of uh, climate change and warming um, and fire in particular. Um, I'm sure you've seen in in the news in recent months and years, um, just the extent of these massive wildfires that uh, are taking place. <clears throat> and it fires it as a part of the system historically, but um, it's well documented that it's increasing in extent and importantly, it's increasing in severity. Um, and in these types of systems, fire actually consumes the organic soil. Uh, and then that has lasting or legacy effects in terms of what comes back after fire and how long it takes to come back. <clears throat> in North America, we often see that flipping the ecosystem from a, like a dark conifer forest to more of a deciduous forest, which has a lot of different properties in terms of feedbacks to climate. Um, and what we published a recent paper um, showing that this system is undergoing what we refer to as a biome shift. In other words, we're seeing mortality at the hotter, drier southern margins and tree line expansion at the cooler uh, northern parts of the biome. And, and do you have any understanding on, on the overall effect of this? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you're, you're getting more trees um, it, further north where maybe you wouldn't have had trees before. Um, it, is, that a, it, is, is that a net positive thing for, for, for do, does that soak up carbon dioxide um, because you've got trees growing where they, they weren't green, growing before? Or are there other problems that, that result in a net um, release of, of carbon dioxide? Now, that's a great question, actually, because we, it, we see both effects. Uh, as you pointed out. So we do see trees establishing where they haven't been in recent history, and those do tend to sequester or take up more carbon from the atmosphere. But at the same time, trees and also shrubs, there's a lot of shrub expansion in the Arctic these days, in, in tall shrubs, uh, meaning a meter or two meters tall. Uh, and those have a whole series of effects because they capture snow and snow insulates the soil, keeps it warmer through the winter, and that in turn makes it more prone to um, thaw when spring comes around, and it also causes um, microbial um, decomposition to occur even in the winter months. So you get um, CO2 coming out of the soil even in the cold months, often in the cold months. So there's a whole sort of myriad uh, effects that, and feedbacks that are associated with at the northern end of the domain. 
And Scott, um, you're the editor-in-chief of uh, the IOP journal Environmental Research Ecology. Now, this is a brand new publication. Why did you choose to get involved um, with launching a new journal? That's a good question, too. (laughs) I didn't really need more work, but I've worked a long time with IOP publishing uh, with environmental research letters, another one of their journals, and it's been a very good experience. I have to say they've they've, uh, they've been great in terms of um, helping with the whole process where really um, my role feels like it's largely sort of advisory uh, and also sort of setting a direction for the journal. So with the new journal, I think it's, um, I think it's, I'm excited about it because even though there are other ecological journals out there, I think there's really a nice venue for the kind of research that I'm interested in and a lot of other people are interested in, which is what I'd call macro-scale ecology, so really sort of large extents, some of the things we were talking about, you know, Arctic domain or continental scales even. Not that it has to be. They can be more local, regional studies as well. But I think there's a real um, opening here for for looking at macro-scale ecological changes and also using those kind of data and information to uh, inform policy. And there's a lot of policy these days related to sort of changing forests, for example, and forest restoration, all those sorts of things. And, and what about you, Michelle? You're the, uh, the launch editor-in-chief of, uh, of another new IOP journal, Environmental Research Health. Why, why did you choose to get involved with, um, with launching a new journal? Well, the need for an interdisciplinary journal on environmental health is the direct result of the need for interdisciplinary solutions to environmental health problems. The the challenges that we face in environmental health are complex and relate to multiple different interconnected systems. So we have physical chemical systems, economic, historical, societal systems, uh, cultural systems, economic, political, and of course, many more. And so I want to stress that we need disciplinary focused research as well but we need to understand environmental health across these broad systems. So we need both disciplinary specific research to better understand these systems, and then we need interdisciplinary work to bring them together. So the journal is intended to be a place for scholars and readers of many different fields to be able to publish and learn about environmental health from a a broad range of perspectives. And I'd like to add that similar to Scott, another reason I was excited to get involved in this journal is my past experience with IOP and with the journal Environmental Research Letters, also called ERL, which was launched, I think, roughly a decade ago. So I've seen the growth of ERL into a vibrant and highly impactful scientific journal. And so I'm I'm hoping we can recreate some of that success for the area of environmental health. And and Michelle, what what are your plans for... um... Uh, the direction of the journal in the future. What are what are some of the hot topics that you're hoping to uh, to publish papers on? Well, I'm really hoping that this journal can help provide insights and solutions to different types of environmental health problems because we have incredible challenges in in the field of environmental health, and these relate to social justice, unprecedented urbanization around the world, and of course, climate change. So, you know, any topic on environmental health is welcome for the journal, but those are some of the topics that I think are are critically important, but there are many others as well. And I'm hoping that this type of journal, which is 
different from a traditional disciplinary journal can be motivating and inspiring to junior scholars. I realize that's a high goal, but that's my hope and hope that we can really help the next generation of scientists because we really need them to address these concerns. Uh, one thing that's really great about this journal and, and in the IOP tradition is that it's open access. So anyone can read these articles. And this gives the opportunity for the work to be used by anyone who's interested. So not just scholars and students, but also policymakers and communities. So I think that can be a really important role for, for both of these journals, actually. And one final point, for now, the journal is also free to publish for authors. So all publication fees are being waived for all authors during this launch period. So that is also very exciting for people to be able to publish without charge. And then in the future, the publication fees will be waived for people coming from certain countries and so on to help facilitate research there as well. And, and Scott, what about you? What's your vision um, for environmental research ecology? Well, I, I mentioned some of that in terms of sort of large scale and macro scale um, studies of changes in ecosystems around the world. Um, but also, um, I, I do think that there's, there's potential for uh, informing policy, uh, decision making um, going forward. And I'm hoping that the, the journal can be a venue for that. Uh, for example, we just had the um, 27th Conference of the Parties of the Climate Change Convention, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And there's also coming up in a couple of weeks the um, Convention on Biological Diversity and a whole discussion there of the post-2020 um, <clears throat> framework for biodiversity conservation. So there's a lot going on in the policy arena, and I think that the kind of research that I'd like to see in the journal would have relevance to those sorts of negotiations. And Michelle makes some great points about you know, um, these new journals being not only open access, but um, free to publish in, at least for initially. Uh, and after that, you know, having a a scale, a pay structure, or fee structure that's related to um, where you are in the world and your ability to pay for publication. So I think uh, both of these journals have, you know, a lot of potential for for influencing the policy arena. Well, that's great. Thanks, thanks, Scott and and Michelle. Um, uh, I hope things go very well with with the two new journals. I'm sure they will. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. In the past few decades, the number of academic papers published on science and technology has increased by leaps and bounds. There's no doubt that there's been an incredible amount of innovation in that period. But a recent study suggests that the amount of innovation per paper is falling. That study was done in the U.S. by Michael Park and Russell Funk of the University of Minnesota and Aaron Leahy of the University of Arizona. And it's described in a paper published in the journal Nature. To talk about the results, I'm joined down the line by the science writer Laura Hiscott. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thank you for having me on the podcast. 
So, Laura, the study looked at millions of research papers published over 65 years. How did they determine how innovative this research was? Yeah, so I suppose it's a tricky thing to quantify something that sounds quite qualitative like innovation. Um, but what they did was they had this idea that if something is quite innovative, then it will create almost a break with the previous research. It's introducing something completely new for the first time. Um, so the idea is that later research papers um, in the same field that cite that research paper um, will be less likely to cite the work that went before it because that's almost irrelevant afterwards because there's this, this new thing that's disrupted the field. Um, Whereas something that's quite consolidating, as the, the researchers on this paper described it, um, if it's consolidating, then later papers that cite it um, will be more likely to also cite the preceding work because it's all part of that same trajectory of building on something. Um, so what they did was they looked at citation records and they used those patterns to assign scores to the different papers. Um, and minus one was the maximum consolidation score. Um, so that means that it's entirely consolidating, just building on previous research. Um, and plus one was the maximum innovation score, introducing something new and kind of, yeah, uh, creating a new start, almost a fresh start within the field. Um, so, yeah, they, they did that on 25 million papers initially um, from the Web of Science database. Um, and then they subsequently uh, studied an additional 20 million papers from various other um, academic databases. Um, and they replicated those findings on those additional uh, 20 million. Um, these findings that there was this huge drop across all fields. So the idea is that when truly innovative research is done, the, the scientific community essentially forgets previous research that was was wrong or, or, or maybe not quite right and starts uh, citing the new uh, innovative sciences. Is, is that basically the idea? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, all, all science or all, all this research um, building up to these breakthroughs is still really important. And that's, that's just how science progresses. Um, and I think scientists all understand that, that, that they're happy that you know, we're, it's a work in progress. We don't have things um, correct. We're, we're always going to find that we were wrong about things. Um, so that work is still important. But in terms of actually publishing papers after breakthroughs, um, it becomes less relevant to cite the work before the breakthrough um, if it turns out that, that that was not correct. So that's academic papers, but I think the researchers also looked at patents and, uh, and, and tried to work out how innovative or not individual patents are. They did, yeah. So they wanted to look at science and technology, not, not just science. Um, and they looked at 3.9 million patents um, that were in a database of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Um, and they found exactly the same thing. Um, the citation uh, patterns of the patents had changed as well. They assigned scores based on the citation records um, and found also that the innovation score, the average innovation score um, across the patents had dropped um, 
over over the same period of time. And so, Laura, what do these studies reveal, particularly in the in the physical sciences? Um, so the the graphs really show a steep decline across all fields of science and technology. That's both in the papers and the patents. Um, although that decline varies a little bit in terms of the starting points, but they all the lines when you look at the graph um, go down to just above zero, really. Um, so for the physical sciences, um, the score went from 0.36 down to zero um, from 1945 to 2010. Um, and across the same period, um, papers that were classed as technology papers went from just above 0.4 down to just above zero. Um, and then on the patent side, um, they also had several um, different fields that they looked at. But for example, um, community computers and communications, um, they went from around 0.3 um, down to just above zero. And um, similarly, um, electrical and electronic patents um, went from a score just below 0.4 to just below 0.1. So yeah, the, although the lines are spread out a little bit, there's um, they all have this quite uniform um, descent down to a score close to zero. Wow, that I mean, that sounds like a really significant change and, and, and possibly a worrying one. Now, I think the, 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 the authors of the paper suggest that um, innovation could be stymied by the publish or perish culture in science. So, so what is this culture and, and how, how could it be holding back uh, creativity and innovation? So, um, yeah, the publish or perish culture, which is often referred to in academia, um, is this idea that to to kind of keep yourself um, a high profile scientist to uh, to maintain your profile and attract research funding, you have to be um, publishing a lot of papers um, and to keep that attention and that focus um, and that focus on on quantity of papers that you publish, um, it can really drive people to um, to stick to what they know and what they feel comfortable with, and it doesn't give you um, much time to explore um, areas outside your field of research um, or to expand your knowledge and to keep up with um, with the work that other people are doing, um, and. Yeah, that, that's something that um, they mentioned, the authors mentioned in this study. They say um, that they, they refer to this burden of knowledge, um, which is ever growing and ever increasing. Um, and combined with this publish or perish um, predicament that scientists face, um, it can be really hard to keep up with, with what's going on and to kind of create connections across fields and and read around, um, which is known to, to stimulate innovation, finding, you know, cross-field connections um, rather than sticking to your own your own narrow field of knowledge. Mm, that's really interesting because I mean it sounds to me like like these researchers have come up with an important metric for for gauging the quality of a paper. And it looks like papers that are being published <laughs> today are, are are not doing very well. So yeah, maybe publish or perish isn't such a good idea. That that uh, quality should count over quantity. 
I think that's the thing. I mean, they, they're quite careful to say that um, it's not necessarily exactly the same thing as quality um, because they, they look at a number of different journals and they find this, this change um, across all of them. Um, so it isn't necessarily to do with um, the quality of the research dropping, but um, just the innovativeness, because they, they mentioned that consolidating work is also really important to, um, to increase the value of, of ideas that have already been, been put out there. But, um, but that this kind of steep decline suggests that um, maybe the balance is a little bit, um, is a little bit off at the moment, that the balance isn't quite right between consolidating and uh, disruptive work, because they say that we need both for a healthy um, ecosystem of science and technology. We need both um, uh, consolidating and disruptive work. Right. And, and so that means that even, even in the top tier journals, you know, something like Nature or Science, that they've seen this drop in, in innovation in papers published there. Yes, that's right. Yeah, because they, they wanted to check um, if it was to do with the quality and they thought that that was not the case. Um, they, they looked at all, all different kinds of journals and, and found the same, the same phenomenon everywhere. And the researchers also point out that, um, that scientists today tend to be much more specialized than scientists in the past. And they suggest that this could be reducing innovation. What, what, why does that follow? Yeah, so they, they kind of refer to this, again, this burden of knowledge and the fact that we know so much more now. There's, there's this huge accumulated mountain of existing knowledge. Um, and it means that uh, scientists have to train for much longer to get to the boundary of their field um, and the cutting edge, so to speak. Um, and it also means that they they have a much deeper expertise, but it is narrower. And um, one thing that has has been found before is that innovation often springs from um, finding connections across fields. You know, um, reading widely and and having a, a broader knowledge base and and find, making these leaps and these links um, across a diverse range of fields. Um, but if if scientists are becoming more nar narrower in their expertise, then they're not able to, to do that so much. Um, and that's actually another thing that they looked at in the study. They, they looked at um, the, the diversity of work that was being cited in papers, and they found that actually over time, the, the diversity of citations within the average paper has also declined, and that's um, associated with a decline in creativity and innovation. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, one thing that struck me um, about this research is that um, I, I think in the paper, they, 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 they say that maybe scientists aren't making um, as many cross-disciplinary connections as they used to, which, and that sort of surprised me because, um, you know, I think cross-disciplinary research is, is, it's sort of very trendy, isn't it? Um, these days, but does that mean that the sort of cross-disciplinary research programs that that scientists are participating in are are somehow failing because um, they're not resulting in innovation, or maybe they're doing cross-disciplinary 
ism, if I can say that, uh, in the wrong way? Um, that's a really interesting question, um, because like you say, it, it does seem to be quite um, quite trendy and, and going on a lot, um, this um, cross-disciplinary work. Um, and of course, some of it will be producing innovative work, because the, the paper mentions that um, they don't say that there's no innovation happening. It just seems to have dropped quite a lot. Um, but it's an interesting question, and it's one that I actually um, asked when I when I emailed the authors and to to get a little bit more information um, about the paper. Um, I did ask whether they thought cross-disciplinary work could be part of the solution, um, and they had a really interesting response. The response was that um, there are actually lots of different ways of doing cross-disciplinary work, um, and some of them are likely to stimulate innovation, but some of them are not. Um, so uh, there have been papers before that have shown that small teams are more likely to produce disruptive work. Um, and one possibility for, for kind of creating an environment that's most likely to foster this, this kind of innovation um, would be to have small teams of researchers who are from different disciplines um, and these, these researchers would work closely together to develop um, sort of a deeper integration of knowledge um, and bring insights together from across these different fields. Um, because a lot of cross-disciplinary work at the moment um, might have a very strong division of labor. Um, so each expert might take on a particular task and just focus on that and then they might add it all up together at the end um, but that might not be the best way of using um, cross-disciplinary um, teams to, to produce innovative work it might be better if they all kind of um, worked much more closely and um, really integrated their knowledge to to find those connections. And the team found um, a large decline, as you mentioned, um, in the innovation with regards to physical sciences. Have they any, are there any specific reasons um, for why physical science innovation has declined um, beyond the, I suppose, the sort of general uh, topics that we've been talking about? Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think that they mentioned any specific ones, um, reasons for the physical sciences um, alone. Um, I think the, the message is it seems to be similar causes driving this trend across all the different fields. Um, I mean, it, it's quite, um, when you think about the past century in the physical sciences, um, and you think about, uh, of course, the, the emergence of quantum physics and um, general relativity um, last century, it, it's easy to see why, why that level of innovation might be difficult to maintain um, up until now. Um, but that said, there has, there has been a lot of innovation since then, and um, there is still a long way to go. Um, but they, the authors here don't mention anything specific to physical sciences. They, they just mention... Um, that the reasons we've already talked about um, seem to apply across all fields. That's interesting because I'm, 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 I think these these studies went up to 2010. Is that right? Is that? 
yes, that's right. So yeah, the the papers went from 1945 to 2010, mm-hmm. and the patents from I think uh, just before 1980 to 2010. Right. So I suppose with the physical sciences, it's possible that that this has missed out on a lot of the sort of the ongoing quantum renaissance, where there's you know n- a new interest in quantum mechanics and people actually building practical quantum devices based on you know all that weird stuff of of quantum mechanics. So who knows? Maybe if they do this study ten years time from now, <laughs> hopefully they'll see a a peak in in innovation. Now, now Laura, one one thing that I, I also wanted to ask you is: is there any any indication that um, that papers today are are of a, a poorer quality because they're not as innovative? I I think you might have touched on that in our discussion, but is that the the message from the from this research, or are they more positive than that about? current um, um, current science yeah i'd say they're more positive than that they they're very careful to note that they don't think that um the quality is decreasing um and it's not really associated with the quality um they what they say really the messages of the paper is that um we need both kinds of work consolidating work is also really important to build on and refine theories that have already been developed and you know make that knowledge more valuable and more usable um but what they say really is to have a healthy ecosystem that um pushes science forward you need both you need consolidating work and you need um disruptive work and um the message really is that these steep declines that they they observe um, seem to suggest that the balance might be a little bit off. So we we might just want to um, maybe have a few policy interventions that could um, promote disruptive work to to get the balance back to where it should be. Yeah, this sounds like a, a really fascinating study, and you can read more about it in a news article that Laura's written for the Physics World website. Just look out for the headline, Progress Could Be Slowing Down in Science and Technology, Find Study. Thanks for being on the podcast, Laura. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Michelle Bell, Scott Getz, and Laura Hiscott for joining me. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, you can listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester chats with comedian and writer Robin Ince about his relationship with science, something that he was distanced from as a young adult, but now inspires most of his creative output. That episode is called Robin Ince and the Joy of Popular Science Books. And it also features Physics World editors talking about three books that were reviewed in the December issue of Physics World. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.